The scripture reading this morning will come from the book of Malachi, chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And now, O priest, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already, because you do not take it to heart. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. It is an encouragement to have you here, and we hope that it's an encouragement to you to be here as we worship God together. We've had a wonderful week. It's good to have our campers back with us this Sunday. I understand that camp was a tremendous success, and we're thankful to God for that, and to each of the campers and the adults that worked to make that a wonderful, wonderful occasion. Also, we had a wonderful men's breakfast yesterday, and we appreciate Jamie Harper and others that made that uh, available to us, and what a blessing it was to hear Phil Sanders as he challenged us as men uh, to be the men in the homes that we ought to be. Keep in mind that right after services today will be our outreach reorganization. Be sure if uh, you're not participating in that, know that that is a great way to get to know other people within the congregation. So be sure and take advantage of it for that reason. And also, it's a wonderful way to know about people that you can encourage uh, each month. So be sure and learn more about that. If you don't know about that, we appreciate Tim Smith and the continual good work that he does in that. Tonight, our theme will be back to school. Uh, traditionally, we strive to do this before uh, a Sunday night before our schools begin and tonight we'll spend some time in prayer and in time of encouraging our youth uh, to be what they need to be and in prayer that all will go well. How blessed we are to have such awesome young people. And it is our prayer that this year will be a good year for them, that they'll grow not only intellectually uh, from an academic standpoint, but also definitely from a spiritual standpoint and that things will be well uh, with them. We do welcome uh, Chris and Melissa, it is good to have you guys with us. Uh, Melissa spent a, a period of her life worshiping at the Brushy Church of Christ. That's got to be good. Uh, that's the little congregation that I grew up in, and uh, it is a blessing to have them with us. The Traveler's Gift is a New York Times bestseller right now. And perhaps several of you have read it. It's an intriguing little read as it combines fiction and self-help within the same book. David Pounder is in a crisis in his life at the beginning of the book, and, and then he flashes into like a dream setting. And in this dream, he is taken back and introduced to seven people of the past. And each of these seven people are famous people, and... Each one teaches him one lesson that if he'll apply into his life, he not only will be able to get through this crisis, but that things will go very well in his life. At one particular chapter, he meets Solomon. Now keep in mind, it is fictional. But yet, Solomon is, as we read in the Scriptures, the great king, the man that has such great influence. And as he's showing him around his kingdom, he shows him his throne. And if you'll remember in 1 Kings, the 10th chapter... When it describes the throne of Solomon, it was ivory, gold overlaid, armrests, six steps going up, lines on each side. And then the Bible says that there was none ever like it before. And so the throne must have been just 
unimaginable to behold. And so as he's showing him around, the throne catches his eye. And he walks over to it and he says to Solomon in this fictional book, he says, can I touch it? Solomon says, touch it? You can sit in it. It's just a chair. And when he sat in it, he said, sitting here I feel so small. Solomon said, I do too. Isn't it amazing how the responsibility of leadership is so humbling? The responsibility of leadership is so humbling. That is, if you're a godly leader. Leadership will either move one to arrogant pride that hurts the individual and it hurts the organization or the family of which they lead. Or leadership will humble an individual. Humble an individual to realize that they're about something that's much greater than themselves. And that life isn't about self, but life is about serving others and serving God. And so it is, I love that line in the book where he says, it's only a chair. What is leadership? Is leadership a position? Or is leadership the influence that we have over other individuals? We all know that leadership is not a position. Leadership is that influence over others. And so this morning I want to talk to you as heads of your home. Just because you've been stamped as the father figure or the head of your home, does that make you a godly leader? No. You and I have to decide what kind of life that we're going to live and whether or not we're going to be the godly men that we ought to be. I want to speak to you about to elders and deacons this morning. Just because you serve in that position, does that make you a godly leader? Of course we know the answer to that is no. The position is one that God has given us to use our influence for good. Now as we take all of this and put it in the backdrop, or put that as the backdrop as we study Malachi, it starts to really come to life. And if you were here last Sunday night, you remember that we studied Malachi the first chapter. But even if you were not here, this lesson will, smooth, will flow smoothly, uh, even if you have not, but yet it will just give you more to build on if you were here last Sunday night. If you'll remember in Malachi, the first chapter, we read about the horrible way that they had defiled their sacrifices. God had commanded them exactly what kind of animals to bring, to bring the very best, and to never bring a lame sheep, never bring the blind, never steal, to bring an offering, and etc. But yet they had defiled not only God, but they had profaned His name because they had disregarded all of this. And it's in the midst of all of this that Malachi writes these words. Let's look at Malachi, the first chapter, in verse 10. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. Malachi means messenger of God. Malachi was giving a message from God in all of this book. But in this verse, what was the specific message? The message from God was, I'm looking for someone. At this particular point, it didn't even have to be someone with a position of leadership. At this point, he's just looking for anyone. Will someone stand up and do what's right? Will someone shut the gates there to the inner court where the altar is and make it available no more for such offerings? Will someone try to clean up this spiritual mess that these individuals have created? What a challenge. 
As we look at the book of Malachi, I want to remind you quickly of the setting of the book. Judah had been in, in captivity in Babylonia. As they are allowed to return back, you may remember Haggai and Zechariah, they were allowed to go back and as prophets and help work with the people in building back of the temple, and that took longer than what it should have, but eventually it was built back. Ezra would go back sometime later and he would work with the people to try to reestablish the religion of their day, to teach them the law of God again, and to teach them how to give and offer the sacrifices and, and offerings on the altar. And then a few years after that, you remember Nehemiah would receive word that the wall had still not been built back. And so Nehemiah goes back and he, he builds or leads the building back of the wall. Well, here as we read of Malachi, he would have been a contemporary of Nehemiah. And so as he's working along here, he's working with a group of people that had returned for about a hundred years. And they'd become very lethargic. They'd become way too comfortable with the blessings that God had given them. And we read in the first chapter of their offerings that they had made that were so defiled to God that God even challenges them and says, you wouldn't even bring these things to the governor of your land. In the second chapter, towards the end, we also read that they had divorced their wives of their youth. God said, I hate putting away. I hate divorce. But then they also went out and they joined together and what God had always told them not to participate in. And that is, they joined in marriage with those women that were idolatrous worshipers. And then we go to the third chapter, and we see that their tithes and their offerings were ceasing. They'd become stingy. They weren't giving anymore. I want to ask you this morning, no doubt he gives the book of Malachi to address everyone about those particular problems. But exactly where is he going to turn to try to find the real solution to the problem? It's no surprise that he turns to the leaders. It's the leaders that help get the people in this mess. And if it's going to be straightened up, it's probably going to have to be the leaders that are going to help turn it around. Look with me, if you will, as we read again out of the second chapter, and notice this simple verse 1. And now, O priest, this commandment is for you. Out of all the people of that land, why pick out the priest? Because the priests were the spiritual leaders of that day that had much of the control over the problems of which were happening. At least they had the influence. They had the right to take a stand for God and say, we will not accept offerings such as that. They had a right to remind the people that they should be faithful to God in their relationships on earth as well as their relationship to God. They had the right to ask the people to give of their tithes and of their offerings. What is leadership? Is it a position? Not only. Not merely. It is influence. It's no surprise that he turns to the leaders not only to rebuke them for the horrible things that, I, that they have allowed, but also to ask them, would they help turn this situation around? I'm begging you this morning, if you're a leader in your home, if you're a leader in the church, please realize the power of your influence. 
What's the first place he's going to start? First, he's going to begin in their heart. Let's look at verse 2. If you will not hear, if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I'll send a curse upon you and I'll curse your blessings. Yes, I've cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. Isn't this interesting? He's saying, I don't want you to just know this, leaders. Keep in mind, he's, verse 1, he's speaking to the priests, he's speaking to the leaders. He says, I don't want you to just know this as an intellectual fact. I don't want you to just know this in the fact that, hey, I understand completely what you're saying, God. He says, I want you to know this as a desire of your heart. I want this to be something that moves your heart. What is it, Lord, that you want us to know, the leaders could have asked. And he says, I want you to know that what I want is for you to give me the glory in your life. Now that sounds simple, doesn't it? Leaders, give God the glory in everything in your life. Is that a passion within you? Is that the heart? Notice he says you didn't take it to heart. Is that the depths of your heart? I believe that it's reflected by the way that the elders of this congregation lead, that they want to give God the glory for all things. But that is the challenge of this eldership every day that it exists. Deacons, the challenge is not to, to lead a ministry in such a way that folks would pat us on the back and say, look at the great job that I'm doing. The importance is to lead a ministry in such a way that God receives all of the glory. What's the purpose of our homes? The purpose of our home is to lead our family in such a way that, that by their life, by their conduct, that God receives the glory. Do our neighbors look over into our homes and see a little bit of Christ or a whole lot of Christ because of the way we live? These things can only happen if those are the very heart have you noticed that leaders that accomplish the most are leaders with passion? You can look throughout history. You can look throughout the nation's history. You can look throughout church history. The leaders that accomplish the most are the ones who have a passion that drives them. It's a burden within. The belief that something can be much different, something can be much better, and it drives them to accomplish that. For example, how many Jews were there living in Jerusalem in the days that the wall was torn down? Now this amazes me to think about this. So many Jews in Jerusalem, and everyone else seemed very comfortable with the fact that the wall was not there. An embarrassment to God's nation because there was no fortified city, there was no protection. It was almost like an advertisement of look how weak God's people are. But then you travel hundreds of miles away and there's this Jew that receives word. Hey, how are things in Jerusalem? How's building back of the wall coming? What? No wall built back. He begins to cry. I'd say that was a burden. He begins to pray night and day. He fasts over this matter. Now, is it any surprise that we see a man that is praying, that is fasting, that is crying over the matter? It's that man 
that travels the distance, organizes the forces, and rebuilds the wall. Why did one man have to travel hundreds of miles when there were so many Jews in that area? The answer is simple. Nobody in that area had a heart to do anything about it. When you see a need in this congregation, I can tell you the ones that's going to fulfill the need. It's the ones that have a heart to do something about it. When you see something that's left undone, you can murmur or you can paint, or you can step up and say, that breaks my heart. I want to serve in that area. Well, what is it that moves leaders' hearts according to God? It must be a desire to give God all the glory. Friends, that has to be the umbrella over it all, and that has to be the foundation on which all stands. It's all about God. They were not doing that. So we see a second thing. We also see a leader's responsibility. You see, as we look there in verse 2, we saw that he was going to curse their blessings, but now let's look in 3 and 4 and notice how he holds them responsible here. He says, Behold, and by the way, I hope you have a strong stomach. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your face, the refuse of your solemn feast, and one will take you away with it. You shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. Number one, he says, I'm going to rebuke your descendants. Or in other words, I'm not going to bless your descendants. In other words, if a nation does not have children that grow and become strong, what he's saying is, I'm going to allow your nation to lack, to be lacking, to not prosper. I'm going to allow your nation to be injured. Leadership has a responsibility to the next generation. What is one of the defining, one of the defining characteristics of leaders? Leaders grow their successors. Fathers, are you growing a young man, young woman that will grow up carry on your name and your family lineage in the Christian faith? That's our challenge. Leaders, we have a responsibility to grow others. And whenever leaders become afraid of others that are growing, that fear will stifle the success that could potentially occur. Every elder needs to be concerned prayerfully and actively about who the next elders will be. Every deacon needs to be concerned about who would carry on their ministry and strive to encourage others and grow others. Every minister ought to be concerned about whether or not they're doing things active, proactive, to help others grow, to also become ministers. God says, I'm going to punish you. And the way I'm going to punish you is I'm just going to let life run its course. You're setting your future up with your future generations to be dismal. 
I'll let it be that way. But then he says, I'm going to take and I'm going to spread refuse. Excrement. Dung. On your face. This is God speaking. What does God think about leaders who will not take a stand? What does God think about leaders that will not give Him the glory? Now keep in mind, these leaders are feeling pretty good about their life at this point. These leaders are doing things the way they want to do it. And apparently these leaders have the fellowship of all the people doing things the way they want to do it. And so you could have gone up to the leaders and you could have said, hey, how's your religious services going? And they probably would have said, man, they're going great. We've got a big following. Things are wonderful. God, how do you think the leaders are doing? I think they have dung all over their face. If I told you right now I had dried paint on my foot, would you know whether or not I was telling you the truth? There's no way. Why do you think God said the face? Right now, if I told you I had dry paint all over my face, you know whether or not that's true. It's obvious. The Lord was saying to them, the embarrassment and the shame that you're bringing to me will be repaid to you in such a way that it cannot be ignored. People don't ignore things when they're on someone's face. Don't you hate eating across from somebody you don't know very well and they've got some kind of crumb or sauce coming down? You know, and you just keep wanting to reach out or say something or rub your face and hopefully... You know, it's just uncomfortable. Well, what if you were just around someone you didn't know very well and had dung all over their face? But it's not just any dung, it's dung from their offering. If you remember when the Levites, when all the tribes were divided up, the way they were to survive was not to go out and farm and etc. The way they were to survive was that the first fruits of the offering were to be brought to them. And they would disperse it, and that's how the Levites lived. Also, when the offerings were brought, they were to take a shoulder and sometimes the stomach and other parts, and they were to disperse it among themselves, and that's how, what they were to eat. That's how they were to survive. Now, isn't this interesting here? The Lord says, okay, you want to bring me defiled offerings, and you want to place those defiled offerings on the altar? I tell you what, I'll give you back your portion. What's my portion now, Lord? You're going to give me a nice shoulder of that beef that I've just laid up there? Says, no, I'm going to give you the dung of that beef just laid up there. Instead of having some meat sauce running down your face, see how it is to have the dung all over your face. You got the point. The point is God doesn't look lightly at all of anyone that chooses to lead and to not give Him the glory in our life. Please, please get this point. If you're leading your family about materialism, if you're leading your family about some kind of academic success or power on this earth or prestige among the community, and those things are number one in your life, if you're leading your family and athletics is number one in your life, if you're leading your family where something other than your family give God the glory, I want to urge you this morning to wipe the dung off your face. It's an embarrassment to God. It not only is an embarrassment to God, but God says, 
we have something we do with dung. You lived on a farm, you've cleaned out stalls before. You haul it off. You haul it out. You get rid of it. That's why he says, and one will take you away with it at the end of verse 3. You see, as the dung is being hauled out, the Lord says, we're going to take the dung that's also on your face. We'll take you and the dung with it. In other words, we'll let other nations inhabit your land. You'll be destroyed as a nation. How important it is for us to realize that we must have, we must have a leader's heart as God's designed it. We must realize the leader's responsibility to the present and to the future generations. But notice as we look at this, it really all deals with influence. Look with me, if you will, to Numbers, the 13th chapter. As we close this morning, I want you to think about a very interesting concept. Jamie Harper mentioned this recently in a sermon. On the screen, you're looking at 12 names. I dare say that many of you recognize many of these names, and there's probably only two that you would recognize very well, and one is because of the spelling, you probably won't even recognize Joshua that well here. What about the other ten? Isn't it amazing that there was one particular day that the other ten had a great amount of influence? Far greater influence than Caleb or Joshua. You remember when the twelve spies were chosen? Did you remember that they were to choose a leader of each tribe? They didn't just go out and randomly pick guys that they thought could be quiet going through the woods. They had to send out individuals that would make a decision that would affect the whole nation. They picked leaders of each tribe. They picked these 12 men, told them to go and spend time scoping out the land of Canaan, and they spent 40 days. At the end, they come back. And there are 10 men that day that give a report that the Bible calls a wicked report because they told about the giants. Now, they did bring back some of the wonderful fruit. It had its good and its negatives. But they said the giants were far too great. The nations were, the, were too large, too powerful. The cities were too great. There's no way that we could take this land. But there were two. Joshua and Caleb kept saying, we can do this. By the hand of God, he'll deliver them into our hands. Let's do this. Now notice, who had the greatest influence that day? If you'll remember, the congregation sided with those that were evil. That day... The stronger leaders were the wicked individuals. That day, the stronger leaders were the wicked individuals. Please note that, men. That day, the stronger leaders were the wicked individuals. They wandered the wilderness a year for every day. And all of those that were over 20 died. I hope that this morning, you and I have been challenged to appreciate godly leadership. 
I hope that you and I have been challenged to grow as leaders. There is not an individual in this room that doesn't have influence over someone. And the stronger our influence, the greater good we can do for the glory of God. Moses one time decided that he no longer wanted to live in palaces, in the uh, Pharaoh's palace. Acts tells us that whenever he was getting ready to leave, to run to the wilderness, he tried to take the children of Israel with him then. He didn't have enough influence. They wouldn't follow. Forty years later, God says, I want you to go back. Now you're ready, and I want you to lead them back. And he goes in, and he leads them. Isn't it interesting that the man that follows him is Joshua? And Joshua could say the same thing. I am now ready to lead these children of Israel over in the promised land, and I tried to do that 40 years ago. 40 years ago, I stood here and I said, let's take this land. God is on our side. Friends, the point is this. We can either grow and do greater good for God, or we can accept the consequences that weak leaders hurt people along the way. A lot of people died because Joshua and Caleb could not persuade the people. The children of Israel stayed in bondage for 40 more years because Moses couldn't persuade the people. I don't know what it is in our lives right now, but I can tell you this, if you and I will grow, we can avoid hurt in our lives and in the lives of others. But we have to have a burden in our heart that says it's not about me. It's about giving God the glory. We have to have a realization in our life that I'm responsible. I'm responsible to obey God and to give God my best. And I have to accept the fact I have influence. Am I going to use it for God's glory? This morning, if you're not a Christian, do you realize that you're making a statement to those about you, and you probably are not proud of the statement that you're making. Why not make a positive statement this morning? Why not make a powerful statement as you humble yourself and put your hands in the life of God? If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you're willing to repent of sins and confess before men, won't you be baptized into Christ this morning for the remission of those sins? To come up out of that water, to have God as the leader of your life, Maybe you've been baptized into Christ and somewhere along the way you've, you've lost focus. You've had influence in your life, but it wasn't godly influence. And you've been giving influence, but it isn't the influence that ought to be given. Won't you this morning turn away from that and confess wrong and let's pray forgiveness. Last Sunday night, my family was traveling, and we stopped, and we worshiped at a congregation. We didn't get into the worship service more than five minutes. And I was saying a prayer of thanksgiving in my mind for the elders that we have at Mount Juliet. 
After several more minutes, we got up and walked out of the service. It was a disgrace to God and His name. Things don't just happen. Great congregations are a result of great leadership. Strong families are a result of strong leaders. This morning, let's be grateful. Let's be humble. Let's give God all the glory. We can help you in any way. Come as we stand, as we sing.